Good morning. My name is Jared Lawson. Uh, welcome to the Parkway Church. Like Wade just read, if you have your Bibles, we will be in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, a very interesting passage. Uh, and as you turn there, I will do the customary fun story intro, as we do here at Parkway. So, years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Turkey, uh, in Istanbul, in Ephesus. We wanted to travel, you know, as good Christians do, making our pilgrimages to places like Ephesus. Uh, so we have a buddy who's a missionary in Istanbul. It's a really, really cool city, so he was touring us around. Uh, and I just asked him, as the, you know, white Westerner that I am, hey, when was the last, you know bombing? When was the last, like, attack here? And he goes, oh, it's been a long time. He's from Australia, so he's, he's a foreigner there as well, but he said, it's been a long time. It's been, like, six weeks. I was like, six weeks? He's like, yeah. So we've got a little bit of a streak going. I was like, yeah, I wouldn't call that a streak. And I go, well, you know, it's a huge, huge city. Where was it? And he was like, uh, two blocks that way, suicide bomber killed 12 people. And I was like, okay, all right, uh, and then I, I noticed as, you know, fear kind of crept in, people are looking at us, my wife and I, Claudia, quite a bit, but you know what, you know, it's just, it's Americans, it, we're, we're, it's very obvious on our faces. So we, we tour Istanbul with my buddy, then we go to Ephesus, and again, there's like nobody there, there's just us, uh, and we were immediately upgraded in our hotel, as we walked in, their eyes got big, they said, oh yes, we'll put you in the best room. We thought, what great service. Then we realized it was because nobody else was in the hotel, and so they just gave us the best room. We're walking through uh, Ephesus. They have kind of the, the ruins uh, of the ancient city and then uh, the bigger city around it. And as we're walking through, uh, just exploring the little town, people are like looking outside of their little shops. They're yelling at people back in their shops, and they're waving us in. And we're like, okay, this is a little creepy. It's kind of like an apocalypse movie. People are coming you're going to eat at my restaurant tonight. And I was like, oh, is it that one? He goes, no, it's across town. We just heard you were here. And so we want you to eat it. I wanted to lock you in. Like, okay, this is very strange. Uh, We go to the ancient city of Ephesus. And I had, you know, we had seen pictures and it's just always packed with people. It looks like Disneyland. There's just tons of people there. Uh, And I have a video on my phone of me, you know, spinning in a circle and there's nobody. It's just us and a bunch of ruins and like a stray dog walks up to us. There was nobody. This is really strange. And then that night in Ephesus, it was the middle of the night, and I was woken up by this boom, 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 drumbeat. It's 2 a.m., and I thought, okay, it's happened. They found us. Information has spread that two Americans uh, are here staying, and the drumbeat got louder and louder. And I looked out of our windows, and there was a guy walking down the street beating this drum. So I'm freaking out. I have no weapons near me, so I don't know what to do. Uh, and then I quickly, you know, I relied on Google, as you do in times of terror, and I Googled what's happened? Ephesus street drummer. And then I remembered it was Ramadan and I typed in Ramadan and it's like an ancient, you know, Islamic tradition of zealous people waking people up in the middle of the night so they can pray. It's like, okay, we're not being hunted. Muslims are just praying around us. Some people have the call to prayer. Ephesus has this one weird drummer guy that goes up and down the street. So I was freaked out, but that wasn't the freakiest part. Uh, We were going, leaving, coming home, and we're in the airport in Istanbul. And as we're waiting to get our tickets uh, in the line, you know, kind of the snake thing, there's this unmarked, really, really stuffed black bag, a couple lines in front of us that no one's touching. And I thought, Jared, you're being paranoid. And then I thought, nope, this is where that stuff happens. And so I watched the bag for a while. As we're snaking through, no one's touching it. It's staying there. And so I finally thought, okay, I'm about to go report There's this unmarked black bag in Turkey, in Istanbul, and then right when I was about to walk up, somebody grabbed it. Someone had been lazily, you know, kicking it as they were zigzagging through the line, and I just didn't realize it. 
So I say all that to say we got back home and then after the trip, did a little history, did some research that I should have done before the trip, but I did it afterwards. And I realized terrorist activity had increased like tenfold. There had just been a coup uh, like a couple months before where like the news stations were taken over and the president of Turkey had to get word out that he was still in charge. It was violently overthrown. And the week we got home, uh, they closed travel to Americans. Uh, and then as I was writing this introduction, I told my wife, hey, I'm going to tell the freaky Turkey story. And she said, oh yeah, I never told you. It was like really hard to get our visas to go to Turkey. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, you're too scared about these types of things. I didn't want to tell you, otherwise she would have freaked out. <laughs> So I say all that to say, had we, I mean, we were fine, but had we known the history, had we just done a little bit of recent history, historical research, we would have been warned, right? No, there's no Americans there because it's dangerous. Terrorist activity has gone up. The government was almost violently overthrown. Probably not the best, uh, best time to travel, but we didn't know the history. Therefore, we were unaware of all the warning signs. Uh, so we went and we survived. But uh, today, as we look at 1 Corinthians... Paul is going to give the Corinthians a strong, strong warning by appealing to history. Okay, so the Corinthian church is a bit of a mess. We look at this uh, pretty much every week of just some other sin that they're just walking in that should be so obvious to them, but it's not. And so Paul, to kind of shake them awake, is going to appeal to Israel, is going to appeal to history and say, wake up. All right, this is a bad, bad place you're walking. So it would be a little bit of a different sermon. We usually just walk through the text the whole time, but because basically the five verses are saying one thing, we're going to walk through the text and then draw out some application points. So we're going to look at three things today. The warning of history, the warning of history, the danger of idolatry, and the hope we have in a Savior. Warning of history, danger of idolatry, hope in a Savior. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump in to verse 1. Father, we love you. We thank you that we do uh, not just have church history. We have 2,000 years worth of history to learn from, but we also have biblical history. We have your word that instructs us. And so I pray as Paul talks to the Corinthians, your word would speak to our hearts as well, that the same sins they were walking in, we might not walk in, that we might see how the gospel beautifully points to you and away from such sinful things and that your spirit would just change our hearts. At the end of the day, all a man can do is convince and, and uh, reason and things like that, but you are the only one who can truly change hearts. And so we pray that you would do that as we look at your word this morning. We pray in your son Jesus' name, amen. So, again, the Corinthians, just a little bit of context review. Uh, they have this massive, massive pride problem that's leading to all sorts of bad things. We've looked at, you know, they're, 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 they're making these little groups of people who follow Paul, people who follow Peter, people who follow Jesus. There's a whole lot of division. And then for the past three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, we've looked at their main problem of idolatry. Okay, and we get in the first, uh, first verse of chapter 8, what's the root of the problem? So look there, chapter 8, verse 1. We know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up. This is the Corinthian problem. They think, because they're so enlightened by the gospel, uh, they're not relying anymore on Paul's teachings. They're not relying anymore on the scriptures. They're not relying on God. Rather, they're relying on their own knowledge, right? Their own arrogant knowledge. And what does it lead them to? Horrible disunity, sleeping with prostitutes, suing one another, getting drunk with communion wine. And today, we'll look, uh, it leads them into actually walking in idolatry. 
they think they have this great enlightened knowledge and it's leading them to nothing but more and more and more sin. So uh, Zach and Jeff both gave overviews of what kind of idolatry looked like uh, in Corinth during Paul's time uh, several, several weeks ago. Those are both excellent. I'll just give a little review. You have in a polytheistic society of Corinth, uh, uh, temples erected just to different gods. And so in the, in the temple, there would be an idol. You would go bow before it. You would offer a sacrifice before it or something like that. And the Corinthian Christians, again, are so knowledgeable that they think, you know, these gods aren't really real. And then they go participate in kind of pagan worship and they lead weaker Christians, weaker Christians, who do think those other gods are real to do the same thing. So again, you see how this kind of arrogant knowledge is leading them uh, astray. It's kind of similar. We looked in chapter 6. They thought they could go sleep around with prostitutes because they were so free in Christ. They would take a good thing from the gospel and twist it, and it caused them to walk in horrible, horrible sin. And so they're doing this now, not sleeping with prostitutes, but with idolatry. And Paul is having to tell them, yes, there's no, you are correct. There's no other gods but Yahweh. But what's behind all those false gods is demonic forces, is demons. And so when you go bow down before it, what you're accidentally doing is worshiping demons. You are actually committing idolatry. And to kind of shake them out, again, he's going to give them this strong warning today where he's going to say, someone has come before you that has done this. And it did not go well for them. Someone has come before you, Israel, who walked just like you're walking now, and it did not go well for them. So let's look at this actual warning. Look at verse 1 at this uh, example that Israel is. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud. So stop right there. Uh, Our fathers, let's focus in on that real quick because that's kind of key to what Paul is doing. Uh, Almost all of the church of Corinth would have been Gentiles. They would not have been ethnically Jews. So Paul almost certainly is not meaning our ethnic fathers. What he's meaning as he looks at Israel is our fathers in the faith. Paul uh, constantly talks about how it's, it's those who are uh, of the faith who are the true children of Abraham. Jesus even says it's those who do the will of my father, that are my mother, my brothers, uh, my, my sisters, all these different things. And so when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, you are brought into a new spiritual family that is closer to your identity than your actual ethnic family. Okay? When you become a believer, you're brought into a family that you're going to spend eternity with. That's not the reality uh, necessarily for your ethnic family. And so Paul's drawing on this as what he's going to say to the Corinthians, again, who are all mainly Gentile. Israel aren't just a random group. Those are your spiritual ancestors, if you will. They are examples for you because they worshipped the same God you worship. This is what's key. They experienced what you experienced, Corinth. Israel isn't just someone who kind of did the same thing you're doing. They did the same thing you're doing. Their experience is your experience. So he's going to draw this close parallel, all five verses that we're going to look at today. So let's look again at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What story is he alluding to there? That you could guess. Exodus. Yeah. Exodus. So Exodus, the story where... Israel, the nation of Israel, are enslaved in Egypt, and God completely, by his own will and power, delivers them, right? Rescues them, leads them out of Egypt, leads them in the daytime with a pillar of cloud and at nighttime by a pillar of fire, splits the Red Sea as Israel makes safe passage through the Egyptian armies coming to kill them, pursue them, and then closes the sea and delivers them, which, by the way, Exodus 
isn't just any old story to a Jew or to Israel. It is the event of their history. What is the most important event to any Israelite? They would say that when we were slaves for 400 years, our God came and rescued us. Our God put away the most powerful nation in the world when we were powerless slaves, right? This is the event. Paul isn't just drawing on any random experience. He's drawing on the experience to show the Corinthians the time when God delivered them, the time when God guided them, the pillar and with the cloud, and the time when God's presence was among them. Notice, God isn't uh, this far distant God. You know, you see any sort of Exodus movies like the Christian Bale one or whatever. God like always appears as like a little kid and then goes away and doesn't ever really show up, right? That's not the Exodus story. God is there. God is bringing the plague. God is present among his people. He's not this distant God. He's, he's incredibly uh, present with his people. They see him or a cloud that, that points to him, right? So he's, he's with his people. This is the event of Israel's history that Paul's pointing to. And then look at verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. What's Paul saying? So Israel didn't just have an experience of God. They had the same type of experience that you had, O Corinthians, right? They have this conversion where they live this old life in Egypt and then they're brought into this brand new life where God brings them into covenant. What happens immediately after the Exodus? Mount Sinai, right? I will be your God, you will be my people, right? That's a conversion in a sense. They're converted from this old way. In the same way you, O Corinthians, uh, were walking in your old ways, then you heard the gospel and now you walk in this new life, so did Israel. Conversion, what's the second thing? Baptism. In the same way that you, O Corinthians, died to the old way of life and were raised anew by the sacrifice of Christ, right? That's what your baptism represents, being raised to the newness of life. You've died with Christ and now you will be raised with him as well. Israel passed through where they had this old life and then because they passed through the waters, they emerged in this new life, right? You see how closely he's drawing the parallels. And then lastly, communion, in the same way that you, O Corinthians, have uh, the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that, you, uh, that c- uh, communion points to. Every time you uh, eat the bread and drink the blood, you, you remember, right, the sacrifice of Christ. In the same way that you are sustained by Christ's sacrifice, they similarly had this spiritual drink and spiritual food. They had their communion, right, where God gives them manna when they're, they're in the wilderness. There's no food and God miraculously provides for them. God gives them water from a rock. Right? Provides for them. They have this spiritual drink. You see Paul very closely. Again, the same way you, O Corinthians, have these experiences of God. They had the same type of experience with God. So, drawing these very close parallels, and then he's going to take it one step further. Look at verse 4. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Very, very strange. What's happening here? Uh, So, first of all, rock that followed them. Didn't know rocks could do that. Uh, What's Paul talking about here? Uh, In Paul's day, in in the time of the New Testament, there was this very popular Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament of how did Israel, wandering through the wilderness, how long were they wandering? 40 years? Yes, I'm assuming in those mumbles, one of you said 40 years. Uh, I just hear blah, 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 blah. Uh, 40 years, how how many stories do we get of water from a rock? Two, right? And the second one. Moses did not do what he was supposed to do, and it goes really bad. But, so, the question that a lot of uh, Jewish interpreters thought was, okay, 
We have one story of water from a rock at the beginning of the 40 years, and then we have another story of water from a rock at the end of 40 years. That's great. They were nourished. What about the other, you know, in-between times? How did they get water all those other times? And uh, this popular theory uh, popped up that, oh, the rock was a kind of miracle rock, and it followed them throughout. Okay, so as Israel are wandering, just, you know, in circles or wherever God's leading them, this rock's just going behind them. Anytime they're thirsty, they turn around, and this rock just gives them water. So this is kind of this popular theory that Paul's drawing on, not necessarily uh, agreeing with it, but what he's going to do is he's going to twist it in a Christian way. What does he say? This rock that followed them, what's that rock? That rock is Christ. Not literally, materially Christ, but, uh, again, the parallel that he's drawing closely in the same way where do you get life, O Corinthian Christians? Your Savior, right? Christ who is our life. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Where did Israel get life? From the rock. The same Christ you worship, O Corinthians, is the same God that provided life for them. Again, they experienced what you experience. That is his main point in verses 1 through 4. What Israel experienced is the same experience you've had Oh, Corinthians, they've been delivered by God. They've been rescued by God. They've been guided by God. His presence is among them in the same way his presence is among you. They've been brought into covenant with God, and he's miraculously sustained them through food and drink, just like you, O oh, Corinthians. And yet, and yet, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Despite all that experience, what's the result? They were overthrown. They were destroyed. In fact, overthrown is almost too light a term. Most uh, commentators I read translate this, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Their corpses were scattered about in the wilderness. That's the result. If you, were, if you were looking closely in verse 1 through 4, you see the word all five times. All of them think, drank the same spiritual food. All of them passed through the cloud. All of them passed through the sea. All, 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 all. And then here in verse 5, we see most. Right? They all have this great, great experience. And not all, but most. God was not pleased, and they were destroyed. Which is kind of an overstatement. How many aren't destroyed? How many actually make it into the promised land of all of Israel? Two. Caleb, Joshua, the only two, right? Most, everyone but two. Their bodies are scattered in the wilderness, right? That's our passage. I'll pray for us. We'll go to lunch early. I'm just kidding, right? Sobering, sobering warning, okay? So what's Paul talking about here? What's his point? Here's what he's saying. Israel experienced the same experience that you have. The result is that they were destroyed. So what's Paul saying here? Your experience by itself, if that's where you stop, if you stop with just the experience that you've had, your experience by itself means nothing. Your experience guarantees nothing. Israel had the same experience you had. How did it end for them? All but two were destroyed and their bodies were thrown about the wilderness. Okay, sobering, sobering uh, warning from Paul. It's meant to be, right? We just looked uh, two weeks ago, or I guess last week, in our theological equipping class at the Great Awakening. And one of, the, one of the difficult things that's happening in the Great Awakening is there's these massive revival movements 
where everybody seems to be having the same type of experience. Everyone seems to be crying out over their sin. Everyone's tearing their clothes. Everyone's wailing on the floor. But some people die to their sins, hate their sin. They love the Lord. They love their neighbor. They go and cherish the scriptures, and they they have these new lives. And others have the same outcries, have the same tears, and they go keep walking in their sin. And so the biggest confusion point that guys like Jonathan Edwards are having to work through is which of these experiences are from God and which ones are the same experience but are actually what Edwards calls the devil's counterfeit. Right? Everyone's having the same experience. If that's where you stop, it means nothing. It depends on where it leads. Right? Is it actually the Spirit of God changing your heart, leading to the fruit of the Spirit, as the Scriptures say, or... Is it literally the devil creating a counterfeit experience that just leads you into further, further sin? Okay, so that's, that's essentially Paul's warning as well to the Corinthians, not just in the Great Awakening, to the Corinthians as well, and it's for us today. I can think of no place more surrounded by religious activity than Dallas, Texas, where going to church is normal. How many churches are on Virginia Parkway alone? How many did you pass coming to church this morning, right? We all go to church. Most people wear the badge of Christian because that's, you're less weird if you do, right? We have, we have uh, you know, good morals. Right? We, we uh, you know, practice spiritual disciplines, things like that. We're all very familiar with Christianity. And on top of that, we're conservative, right? We're not dirty liberals, right? They're the ones ruining the world. We're conservatives breathing the fresh air of wisdom, right? We have so much knowledge, right? That's us, even if it's not us in this room, that's our culture, right? Why is California fleeing here? At least some Californians fleeing here. Oh, we just had to get away from those liberals, right? we got to get a conservative. And so what can that do? Lull you to sleep in the same way it lulled Israel to sleep, in the same way it lulled the Corinthians to sleep. If you stop with religious activity in a conservative worldview, that means nothing. What is one of the most terrifying passages in the entire Bible? Matthew 7, when Jesus says this, On that day, the last day, as people are coming to him, many, not few, not a couple, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Notice, these aren't just random atheists who think they're doing good. These are people saying, Lord, Lord. Oh, there's Jesus, my Lord, right? I'm a Christian. Did I not do all these great things for you? And what's his response? I never knew you. Your life wasn't mine. Being surrounded by religious activity guarantees nothing. Good morals guarantee nothing. Experience of God guarantees nothing unless it leads to Love of him, love of neighbor, the fruit of the Spirit, unless it bears the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you're a Christian, don't let the devil kind of take this and twist it into condemnation. There is, God wants Christians to walk in assurance of faith. God does not want you doubting your salvation. God wants you walking in the joy of the Lord. God wants you confident. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we live in a day where there are thousands and thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of people who think they're a Christian because they've heard a moralistic gospel. If you're a good person, if you intellectually believe this, 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 you're good, right? Nothing about 
sin that needs to be repented of, nothing about your life. You're, you're dead to the old self and you're born again. You're raised to newness of life. Nothing about that. And in that context, what I would, which I would say we, we live in, a warning like this is helpful. A warning like this is needed. If you're hanging your hat on morals and conservative worldviews, hear the warning. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God was not pleased with them. I never knew you. That's a stern warning. It's meant to be. The Bible takes very seriously life change. Okay, so that's our passage. We're going to keep talking, but I I don't want to, you know, we say hard things, then we make jokes. You guys laugh, uh, which I'm kind of doing right now. But the Bible doesn't give warnings, and then immediately, you know, Paul's not writing in verse 6. But you guys are cool, right? He's giving a warning, and then he's continuing on, right? Giving these sobering thoughts, right? The Bible wants you, the Spirit wants you convicted of sin. Again, in the Great Awakening, one of the first signs of a lot of the evangelists where they knew the Spirit was working was when people couldn't sleep at night, when people were neglecting food because they were so concerned over the state of their souls, right? It's a sobering thing. Eternity of damnation is a serious thing, right? I don't want to lift us out of that too quickly. If you need to hear the warning, if you're a Christian, I want you to hear that your salvation is sure in Christ. But if you're not, if you're just trusting in conservatism, if you're just trusting in morals, hear the warning, okay? So, now, if you're reading verse 5, or if you're reading 1 through 5 clearly, you'll notice Paul kind of leaves something out. Uh, You know, it's all Israel experienced what you experienced, you know, Corinth and God got mad and killed them all, except for two. And you're like, cool. Uh, Why? Can you tell me why were they destroyed? You kind of left that part out. How do I make sure I'm not doing what Israel's doing? Okay, it's kind of a Important thing to leave out, Paul, and if you know your Old Testament, you know the answer. It's idolatry. What is Israel's chief sin? Idolatry. So the reason Paul is giving this warning, this warning of history, is this second point, the danger of idolatry, the danger of idolatry. Israel, throughout their history, idolatry is their primary sin. Right after the exodus, God delivers them, rescues them, leads them through the waters, destroys their enemy, says, I, the king of the universe, want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. What happens? What is the next chapter of exodus? The golden calf. Instant, instant idolatry. I had a professor who said, on their wedding night, Israel takes a mistress as they're being brought into covenant, as they're exchanging the vows, there's instant idolatry all throughout their history, over and over and over again, constant idolatry. Virtually every prophet that comes to them, whether it's major prophets or minor prophets, they say two things. Quit oppressing the poor. Stop bowing down to this tree you just cut down. Quit your idolatry, right? That is their main uh, sin, and that is why they're sent into exile, right? They've whored after other gods, Ezekiel would say. And uh, the Corinthians here, we, we know the context is talking about idolatry, but then I'll, I'll cheat and steal some, two verses later, 1 Corinthians 10.7. Uh, Zach will talk about this this next week. Paul just says it plainly. Don't be idolaters, as, as some of them were. So there you go. That's, that's the, the Corinthians following in their footsteps. Idolatry is what's at stake here. Why is Paul giving such a strong warning? Because the Corinthians, so puffed up with their knowledge, are committing idolatry. Israels, they're making the same mistake as their fathers. Right? They're walking in the same ways of Israel. So the question there is, okay, that's great, but how does that apply to us? Other than 
I mean, I know we're getting some more Hindu temples in Collin County, but idolatry, bowing down before idols in pagan temples, is it really a problem for us Westerners? Uh, and even a lot of commentators that I was reading were like, yep, Western cultures, there's no real application. If you're in Eastern culture, yeah, there's idols around, uh, which is fine. I, I think that misses uh, really what's at the heart of all this, which is idolatry has never been about the outward form that your worship takes. Idolatry has never been about what, what the worship actually looks like. Idolatry has always been about the heart. Idolatry has always been a matter of the heart. There's times where Israel is doing all the right religious actions, and God says things like this in Isaiah 29, 13. This people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips. Right? They're singing worship songs while their hearts are far from me. What does God care about? I don't care about your outward religious service if your heart is far from me. Idolatry has always been uh, a matter of the heart, right? Israel, tons of times, so they're going and worshiping Yahweh, but they're also worshiping other gods, so their hearts are far off, okay? Idolatry is always a matter of the heart. Uh, I have a son named Harvey, who's the sweetest little chunky boy in the world. He's the best boy in the world. I know every parent says that, but to be fair, I've seen your kids. Harvey's better than your kids. Uh, but I'll talk about his sins. Harvey's so sweet, he'll hug me. And when I walk in the door, he's so sweet to his little sister. We have a little nine-month-old. She's the one screaming in the corner uh, when you hear screams like in the next five minutes. Uh, and I, I uh, make a protein shake in the morning, obviously. Uh, and so, <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, it's real loud. And so when I press it, Harvey runs over to his sister and says, it's okay, baby. And he hugs her and kisses her on the head. And he's like, two. So we're like, I didn't teach him that. I don't know how that got there. So he's sweet. You know, I'm almost denying original sin when I watch him. But there's things that Harvey likes to touch, like plants and knives and electricity and things like that. And so he'll go over to a plant that he would crush. And we like the plants not being crushed. And so I say, Harvey, don't touch that. And he'll go, if this is the plant, he'll go, And he just gives me two middle fingers with his eyes, right? He's just, right? He's technically obeying me, but his heart is so far from me, right? It's just begrudging obedience, right? Idolatry uh, is about the heart. In fact, what is God's solution to idolatry in the Old Testament? What do the prophets declare will one day be the solution to Israel getting out of their sin? I will give them a new heart. I'll write my law in their heart. I'll take away their heart of stone. I'll put my spirit within them, right? That's, what's the solution? A new heart, Okay, so today, even if we don't live in a culture that has, you know, physical, actual idols that we're tempted to bow down, bow down to, we are just, just as in danger of committing idolatry, just as in danger of committing idolatry. Now, I got to give this clarifier. It's important. Evangelicalism as a whole over the past kind of decade has gone a little crazy, uh, calling everything an idol. Zach wrote a, a, an excellent blog called An Idol of Idolatry, I believe, uh, where it basically makes the point, idolatry isn't just anything you like. He talks about a friend who went to, on a mission trip where they didn't have air conditioning. He came home and said, I have a real comfort idol. And Zach was like, I think you just like air conditioning. That's not an idol necessarily. And so don't go too crazy with this. In fact, there's a lot of things that are a good gift from God that are actually meant to make you worship him that people end up calling idols, right? Air conditioning, praise God for air conditioning, right? That we're not all boiling. Some of you are hot anyway, but you'd be more hot in here if, if we didn't have air conditioning, right? So don't, don't call anything that you like an idol. Rather, an idol is something you love as much as or more than God, 
right? An idol, as uh, Tim Keller also often says, is it's when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, right? It's something that uh, was meant to make you worship God, but instead you worship it, right? It gets you out of bed in the morning. It's something that uh, motivates you. It's something that you, you look to for satisfaction, something you look to for worth, right? That's idolatry, when you make a good thing an ultimate thing. And what's dangerous about idolatry, one of the most dangerous things about idolatry that we see in this passage is that most of the time, they're hidden. Most of the time, idolatry is hidden. Look back at at verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Uh, That's significant, although that kind of seems like nothing. All throughout, we've already seen, for instance, like when uh, the Corinthians are sleeping with prostitutes, Paul says, Do you not know? That's his phrase. Do you not know? Do you not know that when you sleep with a prostitute, you're uniting Christ's body to a prostitute? It's, it's meant to be this kind of sarcastic, you should know this already, right? This is obvious. It's meant to be an indictment. But here he doesn't say that. What does he say? I do not want you to be unaware brothers. Right? That's more tender. He's actually uh, meaning to educate them. This is something that they're unaware of that Paul is lovingly saying, hey, You're going down this bad road, and you don't know it. You think everything's fine, but I don't want you to be unaware, brother. So think about that. Something that is leading to their destruction is hidden from their eyes. They think they're fine, and they're on this road to destruction. Again, they think they have this great knowledge. And oftentimes, our idols are hidden by something that seems good, that seems good to us. So again, the Corinthians, they are puffed up with knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. You don't want to be dumb. Dumbness isn't a virtue. Knowledge is a virtue. Learning and using the brain that God gave you, that's a good thing. But how are they doing it? They're making a good thing an ultimate thing. Israel, again, all the time are doing religious service. That's not a bad thing. They're doing a good thing. They're making sacrifices like God told them to. In Leviticus, they're just also in idolatry. And God has to say stuff like this in Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fat, fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the, and the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, Israel doing a lot of things, right? Not just their animals. They're fat animals, right? They're sacrificing to God. They're praising God. It looks very worshipful, things like that. And what is God saying? Your hearts are far from me. I... I close my ears. When you sing to me, I close my ears. I don't want to hear it. Take your sacrifices away. You're already disobeying me. Just take it away. They're unaware of it right? because they, they're, they're, they're hidden. It's all hidden with their uh, religious service. It's something that seems good. How many of you just want what's best for your kids? It's a good thing. But what does that typically lead to if you're not careful? You're a helicopter parent. You're incredibly controlling. They can't go outside because they might you know, encounter something dangerous, a, a good thing leads to an, an idol. It becomes an ultimate thing. You will sacrifice anything to keep your kids safe. How many of you just want to provide for your family, right? You just want to succeed at work, and what does that turn into? You're a workaholic, right? You become greedy. All these different things that uh, you, you, this good thing that God calls you to do, provision for family, but it becomes an ultimate thing, and you end up sacrificing your family to get that ultimate thing. Right, a good thing becoming an ultimate thing. How many of you just like things running smoothly? And it, it leads to you just trampling anybody that gets in your way because you've got this unique vision of how things should go. Right? That's a good thing. Things running smoothly, that's good. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, 
and you'll mow down any, anybody in your way. You'll end up domineering, right? It becomes an idol. I'll give you a, a personal example for me. So, so I, uh, though, again, I exude confidence, uh, I wrestle with fear of man and people's approval of me. I tell jokes so that you like me, and when you don't laugh, Though I keep preaching God's word in my head, I'm thinking, what a loser you are. People would prefer silence to the sound of your voice. Not really. So uh, I, I, uh, I struggle with these different things. And if I'm not careful, that's an idol that I wrestle with all the time. And if I'm not careful, the way I preach, the way I teach, when I meet with you for lunch or for coffee and we talk about different things, uh, when I pray in public, all of the things that look good, I could be doing not because I want to be faithful to the Lord, not because I want to glorify him, not because I want your uh, lives to actually be changed by the scriptures, but just so that you'll like me. And it all looks good. I mean, how many pastors in the past 10 years have been removed by their elders because of domineering and things like that? And you often hear when you, when you look into those stories, there was just so much fruit. I mean, God was just doing so much incredible things, you know. It just looked so good the idol was hidden, right? You see how easy it is for something good to hide an idol when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. So that's the danger. Things can be hidden. They're leading to our destruction. So again, the, the question is, how do we find them? If they're hidden even by something good, how do we find them? How do we get them out? First of all, if you're a Christian, you need to realize the ultimate idol has already been dethroned. Uh, the, the original fall in the garden with Adam and Eve is, is God, takes, uh, God takes a back seat. He's off the throne. I want to be the one that decides good and evil. I don't want to trust him. Right? You're, you're on the throne. And if you become a Christian, your heart of stone has been removed. God has, God's spirit has transformed your heart. But does that mean we don't struggle with idolatry? No. Uh, several years ago, uh, every summer when I was uh, in high school, I had a buddy whose dad had a whole bunch of real estate properties. And my summer job, if you can call it that, every summer uh, was he and I, his, uh, the, the real estate owner's son and I, would do what we called trash outs. And when someone was getting either moving out of this rental property or when they were getting kicked out, oftentimes kicked out, uh, we were the frontline responders. And so we would go in and remove the dead animals and open the fridge and remove the rotten food and take it to the dump and dump it there. And that's what we did. It was horrible. Someone would come behind us and like paint over the hair that was plastered to the wall. And they're like, this house is clean. So uh, my, my view of evil and sin just deepened that all those, su uh, those summers I realized uh, what, what human beings were capable of. Uh, but one time, we got a text. We'd always get a text with an address, and they would tell us on a scale of 1 to 10 how bad the house was, and it was always like, it's a 2, and there's like dead people inside. Like, that was not a 2. Uh, so we were eating. We got a text with an address, and it said, this house is bad. That's all it said. And we thought, I, I can't even conceptualize how horrible this could be. So we go to this house, open the door, and look in. Everything seems okay. Walked in. In the living room, there was this big pile of clothes which isn't that big a deal. And so we're walking around this house. We're like, do we have the wrong house? This house seems fine. And then I glanced at the ceiling. I glanced at kind of the, the upper wall region. And I saw, I don't know, I didn't count them, thousands of cockroaches just there. And for whatever reason, uh, stupidity, probably the reason, I decided to give the little nudge to the pile of clothes on the floor and hundreds of thousands scattered about. And we ran out of the house and went and, you know, removed all of the cockroach cleaner from Home Depot, came in there and just lit those guys up for hours. Right? We're wearing masks and just going to town. So by the end of our several hours of cockroach murder, uh, there was less 
Okay, you couldn't see any. They were off the ceilings. We're like spraying them and then dodging them as they fall down. Uh, and so the house looked fine. Now, are all of the cockroaches gone? No way. You, I'm sure you could open a drawer, find two or three. Behind the fridge would probably be a couple, right? That's kind of what it's like when you, you, you live, uh, before you're a Christian, your, your heart is filled with idols, an idol factory, as Calvin says. And then when the Spirit begins to sanctify you and it changes your heart and is beginning to clear out those things, it looks better, but I'm sure if you open a drawer, you, you'd see a couple there. So they're still there. It's still something we, we fight. So we have to search them out. We have to find them. We don't want to let them stay there and certainly don't want to feed them or create more. So we have to ask ourselves difficult questions. What is, uh, what is so core to your identity? What is something you would hang your, uh, where, where are you finding your worth and your value? Might be an idol behind that. Is it your job? Is it being a good parent? Right? If people think you're a bad parent, does that like floor you and you just have to, your, your kids have to look good when you go on play dates because otherwise people might think badly of you? Right? What, is, it, is it being a nice person? Is it being the funny person? What, what does it have to, what, what are you putting your identity in? Where do you get your worth? What are some things uh, that you're trusting to give you happiness? What is it that if it were uh, removed from your life, you would crumble? If something were taken away, you would crumble. You, wouldn't, you, you would fall into depression, right? There might be an idol behind that. What are things that ruin your week, right? That when you see on the TV, it ruins your day, ruins your week, right? Is it something on the news? And remember, I've seen your tweets, okay? So I know that's almost all of you, right? Is it because you're, you're not trusting God to run the world, right? There might be a control idol there, right? You would do it better, Ask those difficult questions. Where are you finding your identity? What is it that's so close to your heart that if it were taken away, you would crumble? There's probably idols behind all of those different things. And when you find them, hear me, get them out. That's cancer. Don't let them hang around. That's going to eat you alive from the inside out. It's going to destroy your relationships. It's going it's to affect how you see your own meaning, how you see your purpose. It's going to affect your family. It's going to rob joy from you. I'm not just telling you don't sin because that's what Christians do. Your joy is at stake. Your, your affections that have been rewired to love God, to give you life, that is what's at stake if you don't remove the idols that are close to your heart. And so, again, they're there, they're hidden. Let's find them. And then once we find them, what do we do? How do we, how do we get rid of them? That's, that's really the question. How do we smash the idols? How do we, you know, cockroach spray the idols, to use my earlier analogy, right? How do we get rid of them? Two ways uh, that I can think of. Again, the first way is just the practical way. Identify them, get accountability, form new habits, uh, you know, just do whatever it takes to get rid of them, all the practical things. Uh, avoid uh, things that might tempt you towards those things. That's good, that's necessary, but you could fall into some legalism there. Be careful not to fall into legalism. That's, that's great. You have to do that. That's good, all the practical things. But there is a better way. There's another way, and it's a better way. And it's by focusing on something that is infinitely more beautiful than that idol. There's a sign in Jeff's office. You can go see it. It says this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them to tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You can wrestle down each and every idol, that's fine, but the better way isn't by focusing on each and every one, rather it's focusing on the one who's going to make all those idols look ridiculous, look like a waste of your time, unthinkable that you would devote any time to them. 
Uh, I was watching a couple weeks ago a clip from Dead Poet Society, as I do throughout my days. Uh, and it was the first clip with uh, Robin Williams as he's, you know, intro to their poetry class, and he's having all these kids that want to be lawyers and doctors or whatever. They think poetry is a waste of time. Uh, and so he has them open them up in their textbooks to the preface and read, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know, there's this scale. How do we determine the greatness of a poem? Well, there's a scale of importance and perfection. And where it, you know, scores in its perfection and importance, that's how you grade a poem on its greatness. And as you evaluate poetry this way, Uh, the more your love for poetry will grow. And Robin Williams is drawing it, and then he turns around, and what does he say? He says one word. Is it by now? Excrement. Excrement. And he has them rip the page out. He brings them in, and he says, we don't read poetry because it's cute. We read poetry because we are part of the human race. Law, business, medicine, all these are valiant pursuits, Necessary to sustain life, but poetry, love, beauty, these are things that we stay alive for. And I watch that, and I often think, I wonder, when we're thinking about this whole idolatry versus Jesus thing, do we often have just a very cheap, very bland view of Christianity, of the gospel of Jesus? Jesus is the cool, pasty white guy in our paintings with the flowing blonde hair or, or brown hair. He's usually a Greek model in our movies or something like that who's hugging a lamb or hugging a little kid or something like that. He's a cool guy. He's not someone we know. Right? What's Christianity in a lot of our minds? Believe a certain set of doctrines, attend church, uh, you know, hold certain moral views, do spiritual disciplines because we have to. And I think if that was your view of who Jesus is and that's uh, what Christianity is, I think Jesus would look at that and say excrement, right? What is the true gospel? The infinite God of the universe who created you in his image, who is the source of all love and joy, the best meal you've ever tasted is nothing compared to fellowship with him, the closest friendship, the best, the most uh, love, the height of love you've ever felt is nothing compared to fellowship with him, sends his son to bring you into his family, sends his spirit so that you can never be lost, to seal you, to remove all things that would distract you from him. That's biblical Christianity. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we will be called children of God, and so we are. What does Paul, what does John highlight? The type of love, of course, children. We've been brought into fellowship with him. Isaiah 12, 2 through 3, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Notice salvation isn't something he gives you, right? The big, big house with lots and lots of room, big backyard where we can play football, touchdown, right? That's what I sang about as a kid. The stuff God gives me. What does Isaiah say? He is salvation. And it is our joy to draw from that deep well. That is what real Christianity is. What is Paul's prayer that the Ephesians might know in Ephesians 3? May he grant you to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, listen to this, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What could be a greater destroyer of idolatry than that? Than to know 
the God of all love, the God of all hope, the God of all joy, the God of all peace. And often, I think we just have a cheap view. Like C.S. Lewis says, we are, far too many of us are half-hearted fools. I don't have this quote. Uh, far too many of us are half-hearted fools fooling around with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. We're like kids playing with mud pies in a slum when we've been offered a holiday at the sea. If you want to smash idols in your life, if you want to get out of the slum, quit playing with the mud pies. If you want the holiday at the sea, realize that's what the gospel is. That's what you've been offered, fellowship with the living God. A vision of an all-consuming, lovely, beautiful God will make all other things look ridiculous. That's the ultimate way of destroying idols. And that leads to our last point, our hope in our Savior. Look again at verse 5, the terrifying verse. As you read this, I'll read it again. Nevertheless, with most of us, or with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. I would assume the natural question in our heart is, how do I make sure he's not displeased with me? How do I make sure I'm not overthrown? How do I make sure my body isn't scattered about in the wilderness? You know how? You can know you will not be destroyed because Jesus Christ was destroyed on your behalf. You can know your body won't be thrown about in the wilderness because his body was crushed. His body was thrown about in the wilderness so you could be healed. He was rejected so you could be brought in. He was crushed so you could be cherished. He experienced the punishment for your and my idolatry so that we can know the infant beauty of knowing God as our father. He's not just a judge that says we're innocent. He's a father who invites us in. In fact, that Greek word there in verse 5 for uh, pleased, one of the only other places in the whole New Testament that it's used is when Jesus is in the Jordan River with John the Baptist, and he's baptized, and the heavens are torn open, and we hear these words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You can know he's pleased with you because he's pleased with his son. And your son has brought you into the family as a son, as a daughter. You're in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees you as clean as his son. When he looks at you, he loves you with the love that he loves his son. Think about that. The eternal God of the universe loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That's how you can know. This warning doesn't apply to you. Flee to him. Flee to Christ. Don't make the same mistake your fathers did. Kill idolatry when you find it and see the infinitely greater beauty in Jesus Christ of knowing him as your Savior. Let's pray and we'll take communion. Father, we love you. We thank you this is what the gospel is, that there is the terrifying reality of rebellious sinners before a holy God, and yet that's not where you left us. Though we were the ones who ran away from you, you were the good shepherd who went after us. You were the good uh, shepherd who sent his son to lay down his life for us. We pray that that would not just be a cheesy thing we repeat, but rather the reality of our lives. We pray that's what would get us up in the morning. We pray that that's what uh, would be the lenses by which we see the world. When idolatry creeps in, sinful hearts may be attracted to it, but I pray that you would, you would sanctify us to where we would see them and hate them. We would want them out, not just because it's bad and we're supposed to get bad things out, but because it robs us of looking to you. It robs us of looking to the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That's what we want, Father. We pray that you would do that in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.